All right, I have 6.30 by my watch, and so we are going to get rolling. Um, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Numbers chapter 1. Enthralling stuff for us tonight. We're going to be in Numbers. We're going to cover all of Numbers. Uh, but I promise you, it's not going to be nearly as lame as you think it is. All right, so let me pray for us, and then we will dive into week 6. Father, we thank you that we have everything that we need for life and for godliness. God, I thank you that uh, you are the one who has so composed uh, Scripture um, to record what is necessary and what is sufficient for us. And so, Father, I pray that as we are looking at the book of Numbers, that this would uh, be illuminating for us, and that maybe we would understand part of the storyline of Scripture in a deeper way, even tonight. And as is my custom, if you would, just take a moment and pray for me and pray that the things that I say would be beneficial, that they would be accurate, they'd be clear. Uh, just take a moment and pray for me if you would. Father, I thank you for the time that I've had um, in study over the last week or so, getting ready for talking about numbers. But God, what I know more than anything that I need is you, and I need your spirit here tonight. I know that's what we all need uh, for clarity's sake and for comprehension. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit tonight for us and for me, and that as I speak, that it would be illuminating for us, and that your Holy Spirit would do what I cannot do in uh, changing lives. And so, Father, we give you this time. We pray that it's honoring to you, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let me give us a quick recap of where we were last week. Um, we talked basically all of Exodus. We covered basically Exodus chapter 11 all the way through the end of Exodus, and then we basically blew right past all of Leviticus, because Leviticus is part of that one-year period up until the first 10 chapters or so of Numbers. And so we kind of blew through all of that, but I do want to give us a couple of uh, big points. One, Israel is spending almost an entire year there in Mount Sinai. That's really important for us to see the, the scope of what's going on between Exodus chapter 16, or really 19, all the way through um, Numbers chapter 10. And so that's about a year-long period. And that what we see at the very end of Exodus is that the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, is erected. And the whole point is that this is where God is going to dwell with his people. And so Moses, after they've christened the tabernacle, he goes to enter in, and he can't do it. Because what we see is that Leviticus is what's going to solve that problem of how the relationship is going to be restored. And then we blew right through Leviticus. Yeah? So if you want more detail, go listen to last week. This is where we are going this week. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give, an, uh, give us an overview of all of the book of Numbers, and then we're going to look at the five major sections that happen in Numbers. And those are the chapters, 1 through 10, 10 halfway through 10, and 12, 13 through 19, 20, 21, 22 through 36. That's all of Numbers. It happens in five scenes. There are three encampment scenes, and there's two road trips, okay? That's what we're going to be looking at. And then we're going to end with some final thoughts there at the end. My goal was actually to take us all the way through Deuteronomy and into Joshua's ascension, but we've just got too much stuff here, so it got cut. We'll push it to either next week or I'll shoot a video. We'll do it that way. Yeah? And so we got a lot of ground to cover, and I've got the notes online, so if you miss something, it'll all be there. Come talk to me after that. All right. Let me give you an overview of the book of Numbers. Number one, how many of you would say you like reading the book of Numbers? Ugh. Joe is lying, I think, when he raises his hand. 
I gotta tell y'all, Numbers is actually one of my favorite books. Okay, it really is. In fact, I taught through the entire book of Numbers whenever I was in Arkansas. So, whenever I say the book of Numbers, why is it that we don't like reading Numbers? You tell me. What you got back there, Titus? It's a little boring. All right. My goal is in many ways to dispel with the myth that this is boring. I would say it's anything but. There's crazy stories that happen in numbers. But what's the reason why we don't like reading numbers? I mean, like it's in the name, right? JD? Because of the name, right? And we're scared off by the name, all right? So I've already told you that there's these five major movements, these three encampments and two road trips. We'll get to this here in just a second. But when we get to the name, number one, I really prefer the Hebrew name for this book. Right? If you didn't know that there are different names in the Hebrew uh, Bible, the, um, the Torah, whenever we see that is named differently than what we have in English, like obviously it's a different language, but the way that that name actually comes across in, across in Hebrew, it means in the wilderness. Midbar is the word for wilderness, and Bamidbar means to be in the wilderness. So the whole book is named in the wilderness, right? The reason why that's important is because when we think of the book of Numbers, we think about the sensei or the censuses. I don't know which one to put. I put census is. I don't even know if that's the right word for the plural form of that, but they're, they take a census twice. That's two chapters out of 36. And we don't read numbers because we're like, oh, I don't want to be reading about genealogies and numbers and stuff. It's two chapters out of 36. That means there's 34 other chapters where other stuff is happening. And we'll talk about the content of that here in a bit. There is a census at the very beginning of the book in chapter one, and there is a census towards the end. And we'll explain why those are placed where they are. Yeah? So I just want to dispel with that. Here is the basic outlook or the, the flow of the whole book. There is going to be times of success for Israel, which will then lead to their failure in some way. After they experience failure, then God is going to demonstrate grace to them. And what happens a lot of times is he'll add some additional laws uh, where they start talking about how to deal with the additional uh, rules and regulations for the Levites, he'll add to the law, right? So there are portions of law, but really the process there is success, failure, grace, and then additional laws. There's restoration that's in there, God's justice, all that's coming to work. But here's the deal. What's going on in Numbers is that this is the story of how God is at work in, in working towards dwelling with his people. Does that make sense? Because Leviticus solves that problem of the Moses not being able to enter into the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, but in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, we see him speaking with Moses in the tent of meeting. Okay? So we know it works. Here's the last thing. And if you want to understand the book of Numbers, this is what you need to get. God's justice and his mercy are on display in the book of Numbers. We're going to come back around to this, but God's justice and his mercy are what's going to be on display here. So I want to ask the question here. Why is God's justice something that we should seek out? Because I don't think we actually seek it out. I think we like to say we will seek it out, but we really don't. Why should we want to seek out God's justice in our lives, in the world? You tell me. Gabby. Gabby? No, it's not Gabby. Remind me of your name. Maggie. Sorry. I'm sorry. Maggie. 
Say that one more time, a little bit louder so I can hear. I'm sorry, I still can't hear you. I'm like half deaf. So we can tell others about God's justice. Yeah, I like that. Somebody else want to be so bold as Maggie? Sorry, I messed your name up. Ashley. Oh, somebody else. Kelly. Okay, so your contention is that we're tempted to work out our own justice as opposed to seeking after God's. And what you would then say is that's why we need God's justice is because ours is going to be faulty in some way. Okay, I like that. Somebody else. Now, Ashley. If you don't understand justice, when we get to the New Testament, you're not going to understand Jesus' death on a cross. Hold on to that thought. There was somebody else back here, I thought. Was it Catherine? Was it nobody else? Yeah, Catherine, it was you. You can't sneak it past me. What's up? Okay. So, so we're surrounded by injustice. And I can't fix that problem myself. So we should want to see other justice coming out, right? Here's the way I would say it, because I think y'all are hitting on every element that I want to talk about. And it's much broader than this, but here's what I want us to hold on to. God's justice and mercy is on display, and that's a good thing, because for us, God's justice and his mercy are indispensable when it comes to us growing in sanctification. When it comes to us growing and looking more like Christ and being more like him, the way that he has intended life to work, that necessarily implies God has a rule and a standard that sometimes we transgress, right? And we need to be restored when that happens. If you don't have the justice and you can just go do whatever you want to do, then you're not growing in holiness. If you don't have the mercy and you don't have God's grace and forgiveness, then all you have is just punishment. Does that make sense? So we have to have justice and mercy in order to actually see sanctification work out in our lives, where we are growing in holiness, where we are looking more like Christ, yeah? All right, so hold on to that. Whenever we get into hard parts of numbers and you're like, I don't really know what to do with it, that's what you do with it. Put it in that framework, yeah? My boy up there is tweaking out. All right, let us drive on to our first section. Chapters 1 through 10, first half of chapter 10 in Numbers is Israel. Say again. No, it's just, it's going to do that. It's just going to do that. Right here. This is, this is what you need to be paying attention to. And up there, up there. Yeah, I know. All right, so the first 10 and a half chapters of Numbers is actually set at Mount Sinai. So everything from Exodus 19 and 20 all the way through Leviticus, all the way through halfway through chapter 10 of Numbers is in the same year-long period. And what happens during that time? At the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is constructed. Moses can't go in. Uh, Leviticus is actually the thing that is answering the question of how relationship is going to be restored. The sacrificial system is built in. That's where we see that, um, that chiastic structure that works towards chapter 16 and 17 with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and how there must be sacrifice made in order for relationship to be restored. That's all handled in Leviticus. That happens at Mount Sinai, right? And what happens is Numbers opens with Moses in the tent of meeting. Things are great. Like, this is great stuff. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness, Bamidbar, out in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting. That's great news, right? 
However, there's more that goes on from there. So the rest of chapter 1 is God is taking a census. And I told you this is what was going to happen. Uh, back in Exodus, we saw that there was this, uh, this accounting of the number of people who left. It was about 600,000. Well, here in chapter 1, verse 46, it's 603,550. There you go. Just look to the end. You'll be good to go. That's the only thing you need to know. There's a huge number. We have some precision. God takes a census. If you're 20 years and older and a male, you're ready to fight. We need to know how big an army we got. Go count everybody. Make sense? So that's what happens from there. And in fact, this is where we get our name for the book. This numbering, this census taking, right? That's where, that's where we get the name. And that sounds super boring. I agree. Yeah, I think we can admit that it sounds like a super boring book. It's not. It's just a bad name in English in my mind. Yeah? But here's the next thing. Israel is then ordered to move out after a year at Sinai. Things are going well. They strike up a bunch of uh, silver trumpets. They blow them jokers, and they leave. Yeah? And that's where we close the book on this first movement in Numbers. Tracking with me there? All right, one other thing I want to show you. What happens in chapter 4 is that God actually tells them how to organize the camp. In the very middle, you have the tent of meeting. Right around them to the east, yeah, on your right-hand side, is where you'll see Moses and uh, the priests are going to be there at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And then all the way around it are the Levites. In a similar way to Mount Sinai, that holy place needs to be fenced off. So the Levites are there, and then you've got all the tribes working around from there. Make sense? There is a picture of this that we should have in our head because not only has God spent a year organizing his people, he even physically arranges them around himself. Come now, do you see the connection I'm making here? Yep. And so, here's what I would say. If you want to know a big point of these first 10 chapters is this, that God organizes his people around himself before he sends them out on mission. God organizes his people around himself before he sends them out. Remember, we are after justice and mercy so that we can grow in sanctification. If you lose either one of those things, then we're not going to be growing in sanctification. And if we're not abiding with him and seeing his justice and mercy because we are distant from him, then we're never going to get where he wants us to be. Are you tracking with that? So, when we look at Luke chapter 10... Verses 1 through 4. This is whenever Jesus sends out the 72. Uh, let me read this for us. Luke chapter 10, 1 through 4 says this. And after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, to every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Get to work. Go to somebody's house. If they let you stay there, then stay as long as you need to and as long as you can. But don't be stopping. Don't be taking a whole bunch of extra stuff. Trust the Lord and go. I'm telling you to go. And what has happened in the previous six or so chapters of Luke, this is where Jesus is building into them. This is what your identity looks like, and it centers around me. Here's why this is important. In this room, God has certainly, if you have trusted in Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, he has certainly prepared people in this room for service, for mission. I do not know what that mission for you individually is, but I know generally it's to grow in holiness, to fight sin, and to pursue what God is ha has in store for you. And let me be clear, he intends for you to serve for his glory, for your good, and for the building up of the church. 
if we lose sight of God's justice or his mercy and how we're growing in sanctification and we're growing in the truth of what the scriptures say, I guarantee you, you're not living on mission nearly as well as you could be. Does that make sense? Questions about the first 10 chapters of Numbers? All right, I'm going to run out of time if we don't blow through it. Let's roll through it. Then we get to the first road trip. Everything's been going great. Here we go. We're going to the promised land, taking off. And then the people immediately start complaining. <laughs> look at chapter 10, verse 33 for me. Um, yep, 31. Let's pick it up in verse 31. Nope, I lied to you. Yep, verse 33. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them, and the cloud of the Lord was over them by day, and whenever he set out from the camp. So they pick up, and they start moving away from Mount Sinai, and then look at chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord and of Moses. They make it three days. If you remember the story back in Exodus chapter 14, they cross the Red Sea. Chapter 15, they sing this corporate song. Chapter 16, they make it three days and they complain. And what I told us then last week was we are exactly the same. We are exactly the same. So they start complaining. You brought us out here. We ran out of water. We don't have any good food. We wish we, wish we had the meat that we used to eat in Egypt. Like, we don't have any of that stuff. Let's go back. Look with me there in chapter 11. And let's pick it up in verse, uh, pick it up in verse 12. This is Moses speaking to God. He says, did I conceive all these people? He's saying, why is it my responsibility to save them? I can't save them. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat for all of these people? You hear what he's doing? Even Moses is saying, I cannot do this on my own. Where am I to get meat for all these people? For they weep before when they say, give us meat that they may eat. Verse 14, I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. And then he says in verse 15, if you're going to treat me this way, God, just go ahead and kill me now. So what happens there is Moses is actually despairing for his position, and he is pleading either for God's help, or maybe God should just kill him right there. Because he knows this is, we made it three days. Three days. I cannot stress that enough. They spent a year looking up the mountain and seeing God's presence up there. It came and dwelt in the tabernacle for however long, and then they see the cloud moving out, and they still see his presence. And they only make it three days. And so what happens, just like in Exodus, there's these elders who are appointed to help Moses. God doesn't just kill Moses. He says, no, I'm going to help you. Get some elders, get them together. They're going to help you, right? You can see that there starting in verse 16 and following. But then what also happens is they wanted meat, so God gives them what they asked for. Look at me in chapter 11, verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and it let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on the side. And so he gives them all this bird meat that's like knee-deep. They have more than they can handle, right? Look with me there in verse 33. And while the meat was yet between their teeth, they're still eating it. Before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. And what we see is that God miraculously will provide the quail 
but he also judges them. God's justice and his mercy are combined in this one act. Do you see that? You make it three days, you're wanting this meat, gotcha. Here's some meat and a plague, right? And I think we need to see those two things coming together. And so he's miraculously providing, but he's also judging. And we think, okay, Israel learned their lesson. Things went bad. We made it three days in. Okay, but we're on a, we're on a much better path, okay? Does anyone have a subheading over chapter 12 that you want to read out loud to everybody? So immediately after this quail and they're judged, what does chapter 12's subheading in your Bible say? Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses. I don't know how long it was between the three days and then this, but things go from bad to worse immediately. Miriam was there in chapter 15 when they were singing the song of Moses, and it seems as though she was actually the loudest voice there. And she was the one that maybe had authored some of this. She's leading other women in singing, and they're saying, hey, doesn't God speak through me and Aaron as well? And so they oppose Moses, and what does God do? He judges Miriam. She has her skin turn leprous, turns white, and then he heals her. So you see God's justice and his mercy yet again. And you bring those two things together. What is it that God's trying to teach Israel through these two and a half chapters? Is that if you're going to grow in a relationship with me, you have got to do what I say. There is a right way to live. Are you tracking with that? So... Here's what I want to say. If we're looking for the theme or the big point for these two and a half chapters is this, is that when we are suffering, we inevitably will focus on our hardships when we take our eyes off the Lord. You will inevitably focus on the things that are hard in your life, whether they're suffering or something else, when you're not looking at God. Now, just follow along with me. I don't know how far away you can see Mount Sinai from, but just for this illustration, if they're three days away, it seems plausible that they physically can't see Mount Sinai anymore. Right? And Mount Sinai was like the place where God was, and like we've gotten really far away from that. Despite the fact that the presence of the Lord is covering over them, and it's the Ark of the Covenant's right there in front of them, and they set the tent of meeting up, never mind all that, but like we were there. And when they take their eyes off of where God has them now, what they start looking at is all of their problems. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. He says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are not, or excuse me, as are seen, but to the things that are unseen. I'm not looking at my circumstances. I'm not looking at, man, Mount Sinai was gone two days ago. I'm not looking at those things. I'm looking at what is unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That was 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. And here's my application for that, is that if we are going to be in relationship with God and to grow in sanctification and experience God's justice and His mercy, we must prayerfully abide with Christ so that we can have a proper perspective on situations in our lives. We have to. And without being a little too on the nose, we prayed about this very thing in there before we came in here. Did we not? If we want to focus on the hardships around us and not on what God might be doing in this, then our focus is just going to start narrowing and narrowing even closer down onto the hardships and the suffering in our life. And we're going to completely miss what the Lord is doing through it.
word. We have an example that we prayed about not 30 minutes ago for this very thing. I know that's true. Any questions about the first road trip? All right, so let's talk about the second encampment when they're out in the wilderness of Paran. This is chapters 13 through 19. This is where we have like the big action of numbers takes place. This is where we see the 12 spies are sent out into the land, right? They make it about halfway to the promised land from Mount Sinai. They take a halt. Moses gathers up 12 dudes, one from each tribe. He says, hey, go check out the land. Stay in there for 40 days. Make sure you see it all. Come back and talk to us. And what we'll see is that eventually um, we're going to see that Caleb and Joshua are going to be the ones who start to take center stage. Caleb is the one that we hear speaking, but Joshua's right there with him. And we know that by his prominence later on and how he's spoken of being faithful. Um, so we hear Caleb, but really it's Caleb and Joshua, which means that there are 10 other people who are not Caleb and Joshua. You tracking with me? And what happens with these cats is that they start to whip up the crowd. They start saying, yeah, 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 we get it, that God told us he's going to give us the land. But check this, like, there's really tall dudes there. I'm being dead serious. That's the thing that they say. The men who live there are tall. They got a bunch of Pastor Anthony's running around. These cats are tall. You don't get it. Yeah, I get that we got, you know, if you're looking at like the comic book version of this story, there's like the dudes carrying the grapes between a pole and there's like these huge grapes, like whatever, you get the point, like it's really bountiful. Yeah, 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 but the guys are tall. You get that? And so what ends up happening is if you look there in chapter 13, let's pick it up in verse uh, 31. <clears throat> chapter 13, verse 31, if I get there. Then the men who had gone up with them, not the two, the other ten, they said, hey, we're not able to go up against these people for they are stronger than we are. And uh, so they brought the people of Israel to a bad report of the land they'd spied out, saying, the land which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw of it are of, my translation says, great height. <laughs> Dude, they're tall. You don't get it. They're tall. And then what happens in chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept all that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in Egypt, or that we would have died out in Bamidbar, out in the wilderness. It would have been better for us to die out in the wilderness, not on the edge of the promised land. It would be better for us to die in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? And they said, Hey, let's choose a leader and let's go back to Egypt. You hear that? You hear that? Like, we can't do it. They're tall. Let's go back to Egypt. Which is actually the same thing they said back in Exodus as well. So what happens from there is the crowd moves to elect a new leader and then return to Egypt. And this is where things get really difficult for us. Look with me in chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. Well, you just read that. Sorry. Look at uh, chapter 14, verse 20. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Moses interceded for him. I've pardoned, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with my glory. None of these men who have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt and the wilderness and put me to this test, verse 23, none of them shall see the land that I swore to them. And then what God says is, I'm going to promise this rebellious generation, you're never going to make it to the land. 
You're never going to make it to the land. This is basically what God says. Hey, y'all are complaining about going into the land because the dudes there are tall. You don't want to go? That's fine. But you're not going back to Egypt either. You even said, it'd be better for us to die in the wilderness. Word. Harsh, don't you think? And whenever we look at that, we see God's justice coming through, but like, man, that seems just really harsh until we see that he is promising, I want to give it to the next generation. There's mercy. He's not just wiping them out. He's judging, he's disciplining them, but he's also being merciful, right? And so what happens from there, you can look in chapter 14, verses 39 and following. What Israel does is they say, you know what, God? Nope, we got the picture. Uh, you're going to discipline us. How about we do this? How about let's just go take the land by force? We'll do it right now, right? I cannot tell you how many times my kids, after I tell them, hey, you need to go do something, I'm telling you a simple task, go do it now. And then they fart around and do whatever they're doing that's not the thing I told them to do. And I tell them, hey, go do it now or there will be consequences. And then they don't, don't go do it. And I call them back and say, hey, here are the consequences. You know what they almost inevitably start doing? They will sprint from me to go try to do the thing that I told them to do the first time. Like, no, like it's too late for that. So what does Israel do? Hey, we'll go take the land. And then they get whipped by the Amalekites. Moses even tells them like, guys, the Lord's not going with you. You're not taking the ark either. You're doing this on your own. You're being rebellious. This was the lesson the whole time and you didn't get it. You can't go. They go anyway and they get whipped. And then we think, okay, they learned their lesson. This middle scene where they are there in the, the wilderness of Paran, they catch it. They're good. They learned their lesson. They got whipped by the Amalekites. Somebody want to read for me the subheading over chapter 16 for me in your Bible? What is the subheading? Korah's rebellion. rebellion. Somebody got another one? Maybe a better one, hopefully? Many leaders rebel against Moses. Moses. That's actually worse. (laughs) Right? You see how we went from bad to worse? They grumbled three days in, and then Moses' closest folks, Miriam and Aaron, started grumbling. Here, they have this huge discipline laid on them. They go try to fight this battle that they can't win. And we think, okay, they went bad and they learned their lesson, but actually it goes from bad to worse. Because what happens in chapter 16, there's this cat named Korah and his entire clan. They're actually on the... uh, um, Actually, let's just go back to... That's not good. I'll show you later. If you remember that chart on the uh, south end, that's where Korah was encamped, the clan of Korah. And basically they were the Levites who were supposed to carry all the stuff of the tabernacle. And he said, actually, I don't want to be a Levite who's carrying stuff. I want to be a priest. And so him and 250 of his dudes get together and they say, we're going to be priests now. And God burns them alive. Whenever you look through there, What happens in this rebellion is that Moses is firmly established as the appointed leader. You can't supplant your way into that leadership. And in fact, after those 250 cats get burned alive, there's actually another plague. If you look there in Numbers chapter 16, verse 49, after the 250 men died in in verse 35, a little bit later in verse 49, 14,700 people die because of a plague. So basically, let's just do some simple math. That's basically 15,000 people die 
because of rebellion. It starts with complaining. And we look at that and we're like, golly, man, God's justice is like, that's wild. But if we miss that God's also merciful during that time, we'll see this is just nothing but devastation and judgment when it's really discipline. And whenever you read the story there of, of uh, the fire consuming these 250 guys there in verse uh, 35, it makes it sound like all of Korah's family is wiped out. But actually, if you were here over the summer on Wednesday nights, we were looking at psalms that were written by a couple of cats. Y'all remember who those groups were, Paul? That wrote some of the psalms that we looked at? The sons of Korah. And so there's actually this remnant of Korah's family that survives, and the name makes its way into history a little bit later, and it's canonized in the psalms. And these guys who had experienced God's justice as it experienced his discipline, are now writing psalms reflecting on how good God is. Because I think they pictured not the, the justice, they pictured the mercy and the grace. So here's the big picture point that I want to make. Remember, we do not want to go to the land. We would rather go to Egypt or die out in the wilderness. Remember this, God will often give us what we want even if it does us harm as a form of discipline. And that sounds really harsh. Let me read for you Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Romans 1, 24 and 25. After Paul's in explaining that the people had been wanting this thing and their hearts were lusting after that and their desires were for this thing, he says this in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God, or the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Let me translate that for you. I keep telling y'all to stay out the mud. Stay out the mud. It's not good for you. Stay out the mud. You keep playing in the mud. It's gonna go bad for you. Fine, have all the mud you want. And God just lets them go. We don't wanna go into the land, the guys there are tall, we would rather go to Egypt or die in the wilderness. Wilderness it is. And God does that as a form of discipline. Let me apply that to us. What we have to do as people who are following Christ, we must cling to the truth of God's word and hold fast to it because that tells us how life is meant to be lived. Because if we keep going our own way, there's a good chance that God just might say, here are some natural consequences. Please don't do that. There is something better for you. Fine, have it. When I injured my back when I was in Iraq, there was recovery that I had to do. My physical therapy, I think, was not great as far as like what the process of what I was told to do. But here's what I do know. During that process of recovering from my back surgery and even to this day, if I go and do hard work, I have to recover. I must. Like there's, It's not an option. Because if I try to pr push through the pain and push through the, the suffering that I was going through that was for my own benefit, if I try to do that two or three days in a row, how do you think I'm going to be feeling on day four? What about day five? Like there have been times where after I have just overdone it, and when I say overdone it, I mean like sweeping sometimes. Like that little action of just being bent over wrecks me. It's crazy, right? 
Sometimes if I overdo it and I do not recover, I am not just put back to where I started. I am well beyond that in the opposite direction. When it comes to our sanctification, there are times that we are going to mess this thing up. Yes, we are going to fail. Yes. In those moments, whenever there is that pain, God is telling you, here's how you can be restored. Right? That's the whole theme. How is relationship going to be restored? God tells us. We have got to prayerfully hold to the Word of God because that's how life is meant to be lived. And if we mess that up, there are going to be times where we didn't just get set back. If we try to like not do what the Lord tells us to do, it's going to get worse for us. And I'm not just saying there might be this wasted time that we had, but like there's more to it than that, but there's definitely not less, right? So the big picture there is that God will often give us what it is that we desire, even if it does us harm, because he's disciplining us. He wants something better for us. Questions about these middle chapters of 13 through 19? Yes, ma'am. Alita. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, I've skipped over a couple of the elements there, but the earth opens up and swallows up a whole bunch of dudes, like 10,000 or something like that, if I remember correctly. So if you've got the exact verse, holler it out. But point is, like, it goes from bad to worse. Hey, we don't want to enter the land. That's fine. You'll never enter the land. Okay, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll do what you want. No? No? And then Korah steps up and goes, actually, I want to be in charge. No? It goes from bad to worse. By the way, are you seeing a theme here? You don't have to be a biblical scholar to see that the last two scenes have gone from bad to worse. What might we anticipate will happen in the second road trip? Anybody? Things will go from bad to worse. So let's look at that, from worse to worse, right? Let's look at the second road trip in chapters 20 and 21. This is probably the most famous scene in Numbers because there's like, frankly, a bizarre thing that happens. But let's look at it. Let's pick it up there in chapter 20, verses 2 through 13. We're only going to read a little bit. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 2. Now, they take off. They're going to the second road trip. Now, there was no water for the congregation. Uh Uh-oh. What happened the last two times that we saw that there was a problem with food or water? In numbers, things went bad. What was the last time that happened where we didn't have water in Exodus? Things went bad. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled and against Moses and said, Would that we have perished with our brothers and perished before the Lord. Why have you brought us out into this wilderness that we should die here? Uh, y'all made that decision. You said we would rather die in the wilderness than have to fight the tall guys, right? So, like, the irony is, like, completely lost on them that this is exactly what you said you wanted. We're going to go out here and we're going to die. And a little bit later, this is what God says in verse 8. God hears them. He speaks to Moses and says, take the staff, you know, the one that divides the Red Sea and It ends up budding and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, and go tell this rock to yield its water. And you're going to bring out the water from the rock and give them a drink for them and their cattle. And so Moses took the staff 
And he went and he did everything. He gathers everybody together. And so what we see here is that it's basically the exact same scene from Exodus 16 to 17. It's almost the exact same scene. Here's a rock. Speak to it. Water's going to come out. Cool. Moses should know what to do at this point. He literally was just told by God, and it's basically the exact same thing that happened the last time they were on the other side of Mount Sinai. Pick it up there in verse 10. And by the way, does anybody have a spoiler there in chapter 10 or uh, uh, verse 10 with a subheading? Because if you read that, that's going to... What does it say, J.D.? Moses strikes the rock. Uh-oh. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear me now, you rebels, you guys who don't know how to do what you're supposed to do. Shall we bring water out of this rock for you? Is Moses really the one bringing the water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he spoke to the rock twice. Is that what your Bible says? Because mine doesn't. What does yours say? He hit that joker. He smacked this rock twice. Is that what God told him to do? God told him to speak to it. He goes out there and he whacks this joker twice. And water comes gushing out. And he's like, ah, see? I gave you this water. And what we actually see is that Moses' own rebellion leads to judgment for himself. <laughs> we went from worse to even more worse. Worser? More worse. Batter. There we go. <laughs> Worstest, right? And so Moses is told, hey, man, uh, God calls him and goes, that's not what I told you to do. Your pride has gotten the way. I was going to deliver these people. You were going to lead them. But you know what? No more. I'm going to let you get to the mountaintop and you can look into the land and you're going to die up there. That's what's going to happen with you, Moses. And so eventually what we see in the narrative, Aaron dies, Eleazar is made the high priest. Aaron, he failed. He dies. He doesn't even get to see the land. Moses eventually will die, getting to look into the land. And there's God's justice. And because we've held to our pattern, this is where we say, ah, but they learned their lesson, right? And everyone in here goes, yeah, no. Because exactly not. When you look in chapter 21, let's look at verse 4. Now, from Mount Hor, they set out by the new way, or by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom, because they wouldn't let them cut through. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Does that ever go well, by the way, in your own life? Does that ever go well? That's for free. You can have that for free. And they spoke and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Again, the irony is just completely lost on them. You asked for this. Why have you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? There's no food or water, and we loathe this worthless food. You know this manna that miraculously has been provided for 40 years that you ain't got to work to have it show up. It's just there every morning like clockwork, six out of seven days. Yeah, you're right. It's worthless. In verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that the people of Israel died. What? Weird, right? So, there's more grumbling, and then there's this bizarre judgment. Now, let's just, po let's just pause for a moment. Why do you think God sent fiery serpents? Snakes. Say again. It's a reminder of Satan in the garden. One of the things that we've been tracking all along is the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And again, I would recall our thoughts back to the previous 
comments that I made that there will be times God will give us what it is that we're asking for. And basically what goes on here is there's this grumbling. And so God judges them with serpents, right? However, he's also going to not just only judge them and discipline them, but he's also going to deliver them with a bronze serpent. Weird. Hey, Moses, go make you a, a bronze snake, wrap that joker on a pole, hold it up, and whoever looks at it, they'll be fine. Doesn't matter if they get bit once, twice, whatever. They look at it, they'll be fine. Here's my point. These overtones of the serpent, uh, seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman and how they're warring with each other, it's really coming to a head here. And what God is basically saying, y'all want to act like snakes? Live with them. Oh, you can't live with them because they bite you? Sounds like you need deliverance from that. Come now. Like, do you see how that's working in the narrative and it's tying it all the way back to Genesis 3.15? And so if you want to act like the snakes, that's what you're going to get. And so he sends these snakes and then he heals them with it. Right? Here's the big takeaway from this. God's judgment and his grace are inextricably linked. Remember, we talked about God's justice and his mercy. Here we're seeing judgment and grace are being brought together. God's justice over wickedness is also going to be the source of life for his people. Come now. Can you possibly think of any other time in which an act of wickedness is actually going to be the thing that God uses to bring life for us? Anybody? In John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with this cat named Nicodemus and goes, Hey man, you're a teacher of Israel. You should have been picking up on this all along. But let me tell it to you like this. You remember that snake that Moses lifted up? Lifted up? Get it? Brought up so you can all see and is being elevated just as he was lifted up, that serpent, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. You remember that conversation? And what Jesus said is the exact same way that there is going to be this instrument of death and this wicked act, that's going to be the very thing that I'm going to use to bring you eternal life. Come now. Right? Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 says this. This is the author of Hebrews reminding Christians of this. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. When you run into God's justice, it's going to be real appealing to like try to get out from underneath that as quickly as you can. I don't want to feel the consequences of my sin. I don't want to feel the justice of God. I would rather feel the mercy of God. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, when you feel God's justice and his discipline, that's meant to remind you you need him. That's how this works. God is certainly going to deal with our sin. And he's going to discipline us as children. That's going to happen. And sometimes... It seems kind of crazy that God would actually come down so harshly on our own sin. But what we've got to see is that that's God's mercy shining through, that he is showing you there's a better way. Don't think that God's disciplining you for no reason. He's doing it to bring you closer to himself. Yeah? All right, any questions about this second road trip? All right, I'm going to try to blaze through this last bit. The plains of Moab, 
They take up, they get all the way over there. They're basically across the Jordan uh, on the other side from uh, Jericho, and they camp out there for a little while. And what happens is there's actually this focus on this really strange character named Balaam. There's this cat named Balak, who is a king, and he says, hey, I'm really worried about, you know, this 601,000 strong army that's like sitting at my border. Uh, I would rather them not be here. I can't do anything about them right now. Let me go get Balaam, who is like this pagan sorcerer. I don't really know exactly what he is, but hey, let me go get Balaam and I'm gonna get this guy to curse him. And so what ends up happening is this guy is hired to curse Israel, but the only thing he can do is bless him. He even tells Balak at the very beginning, hey, I, I cannot say anything other than what the Lord tells me to say. I don't care how much money you give me. I can only go so far. And I hear you're trying to curse these folks. I'll do my best, but I don't make any promises. And three different times, he goes to do that very thing, and he can't do it. In fact, if you look there in chapter 24, verses 10 through 13, that's exactly what he says. Balak's anger was kindled, and he's like so mad. He's like, ah, I told you to curse these guys. And Balaam's like, hey, man, what do you want me to do? Like, I, I, <laughs> I can't do anything. I'm trying, but the Lord won't let me. And he says, let me, let me give it a shot one more time. Let me give it a shot one more time. So he goes up on another hill, and he starts to try to curse these cats. Look with me in chapter 24, verse 17. Instead of cursing them, he's actually given basically an oracle from God. And this is what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab, and shall break down the sons of Sheth. Edom's going to be disposed, Seir also, Israel's going to do valiantly. Yeah, what do you want me to do? He gets a vision of this future king who's going to come, and he's going to judge, and he's going to rule the nations. And don't miss this. What did he say about this star rising from Jacob? What's he going to do to Moab? What does your translation say in verse 17? He will smite. Any other translations? Crush. Crush what? The forehead. Come now. Do you not see the connections to Genesis 3.15? The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And here's this pagan cat up on the hill saying, I, I don't know what's going on here, but I see that there's clearly this king who's coming out of Israel. And it's going to go really bad for you, dog. Like, I, you're going to die. It's going to, it's going to be real bad. He's coming. That's what I got, right? And then he's done. And here's the crazy part about all this. While this is going on, up there, up on the hill, where Balaam and Balak is up there having this conversation, and he's blessing Israel, saying that there's going to be this future king. Look with me there in chapter 25, verse 1. While all this is going on, while Israel lived in Shittim, which is this place, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, and these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. While this is going on, Israel's down in the valley engrossed in this sin of Baal worship. While this is going on, and so what ends up happening is God says in verse 4 to Moses, Hey, take all the chiefs of the people, and you hang these dudes out in the sun for everyone to see. And Moses and the judges of Israel, these elders that were elected earlier in the book, each of you are going to kill these men who have yoked themselves to Baal. 
And so what God does is he deals with those who were expected to lead Israel in covenantal faithfulness. He judges them. And he hangs them out in the sun for everyone to see. While they're in the middle of the sin, unaware that Balaam's up there blessing them. (laughs) What? And then what happens from there in uh, chapter uh, 25, or excuse me, 26 at the end of uh, about halfway through the chapter in verse 51, they take a second census. And the reason why we count all the way up to 601,000 and some change is uh, basically we got to make sure that all of that generation died out in the dirt. And so what happens there in chapter 26? The census is taken and says, yep, the task is done. And there's a bunch of other stuff that happens towards the end of the book. Here's my point. Here's the thing that I want to make uh, my point for this last section here is that while Balaam is up there speaking, Israel is down there sinning, here's the deal. God continues to speak truth over his people. He continues to protect them. And he is going to provide for their future even when they're in the middle of their sin. They don't even know what's going on. Like there's no indication from the text that Moses ever finds out in real time that there's a dude up there blessing them. Now, he obviously has some insight later on because he writes about him. But we don't have any indication that Moses is aware of this going on while it's happening. But in the middle of Israel's sin is when God is up there saying, I see a star. He's got a scepter in his hand. And this king is going to crush his enemies. He's going to rule over them. That's what's coming down the pipe. Right? Romans 2, 4. This is what Paul says there. He's asking a question. He says, Do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here's my point. We have got to be vigilant to fight sin in our lives and pursue holiness to pursue sanctification. We have got to do that. And we cannot be entitled and just presume that God's just going to forgive us. Even though it is true, Paul says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That is a true statement. But it's also true that God will discipline you. We have got to pursue holiness because what is at stake here is like, you could get to a point where you just start assuming, ah, God's going to take care of it. He's he's fine with what's going on. That's a dangerous game. Not to use the illustration of my children again, but whenever they get disciplined... There's all sorts of times where immediately after they recognize that there's been some kind of failure, they try to start making up for whatever the thing was, right? And even before they mess up again, there's always a moment where that switches. They went from like trying to make up for whatever it is to like, ah, it'll be okay. (laughs) And then we just start to cycle all over again. Hey, if you don't do the thing I told you, there's consequences, right? I think we can fall into that exact same trap. Final questions about this section here before we hear our final thoughts, and we'll wrap up for tonight. Anything about this last 14 chapters or so of Numbers? Ed, you chewing on anything? Nope. All right. Let me hit some final thoughts for us real quick, and this will be it. Number one, Numbers is a tragic story about the failure of Israel. It is. Things go from bad to worse to worser to worstest whatever, right? It just goes from bad to worse. In fact, in the next story, 
in the timeline. We start seeing Joshua. Things start going really great. But guess what? After Joshua dies, we have the book of Judges. You know what happens there? Goes from bad to worse there, too. There's this tragic story of how there is this success, but then failure, and then God's grace. And we live in that same cycle, too. So don't look at numbers and be like, oh, look at them. They really messed it up. But me. No, you too. No, but Pastor Lee would too. This is our story too. We've got to see God's justice and his mercy. Here's the second thing. God is going to remain faithful to the covenant, and he expects us to as well. And when we don't, there's going to be discipline. There's going to be judgment in that regard, right? But when he's dealing with his children, it's not just judgment. It is discipline. He's bringing us closer to him. Wasn't me. And then the last thing that I would say, when we look at numbers, it closes with them on the doorstep of the promised land, but there's more work. That's what Deuteronomy is. There's this whole other generation that is unaware of the law of God, and Moses has to give these huge speeches and tell them the law one more time. We'll talk about that in the next session. But I just want to remind us of the big point that we made at the very beginning. God's justice and his mercy are the means that he uses for our sanctification. You remove either one of those things, God's justice or his grace and mercy, you remove either one of them and we cannot be sanctified because we will either not know what the right thing to do is or we're just going to feel his thumb on us and we will never be restored in relationship. The whole point of Numbers, I think, in many ways, is to progress this story forward to show Israel's failure, but also to show that God is still pursuing them. He is still, through His covenantal faithfulness, His covenantal love for us, He is still saying, but a relationship can be restored if you just come with me. And we're going to see this cat named Joshua. He's going to rise through the ranks, and he's going to start leading them. And then I think a lot of times what the people of Israel will do is they'll start looking to Joshua as like, He's the man that we need. He's the one who's going to bring everything about that is right. But guess what happens to Joshua? He dies. And then there's these judges, and then we enter the cycle of like, oh, no, what we need is this cat named Samson. He's going to lead us out of all this. And no, he fails. Okay, but what we need is a king. Get this tall cat named Saul, right? And he fails. And then we get this dude named David. Oh, man, he is legit. He's the guy we need. And he fails. And every king after him, and every politician since, and every pastor since then, and every church member since then. Because what we need is not some dude to come help us. We need God. And what Numbers is showing us is that's what you need. You need God and His provision to bring about real sanctification, real justice, real holiness, real mercy and love, and that's salvation. We see that being hashed out through the rest of the storyline. Yeah? All right. Questions about the book of Numbers? Joe. One of the things that's always struck me about this first generation out of Egypt is, you know, we oftentimes... Yep. You know, if I could just hear God, if I could just see God do this miracle, then I would believe, or then I would be, get, get, yep. be faithful, all these sorts of things. And, and we're talking about a generation that saw really heard mm-hmm. God's voice with their ears yep. at the foot of Sinai. Like they heard the screams of the mothers of the Egyptian children that died in Egypt. Yep. Like they, they saw with their 
the presence of God in the flame and in the, in, in, in the, in the cloud and I mean on and on and on and all the plagues and all the judgments like they you know as experiential as we I mean they experience God I mean, David in a way that we won't just, yeah, yeah exactly yeah and, and and so and yet we see grumbling we see rebellion we see treason we see all these sorts of things and and just just to to be appreciative of, of the word of when we have the word of God, to listen to it, to obey it, to follow it, but but not to think that um, if God would just quote unquote show up, then everything would be right. Yeah. God, when God's here, God's present, He's given us His word. Yep. When God does show up, that's when the locusts appear. You know, that's Yeah, that's that's when things actually go really bad. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if you just to recap that statement of like in my more bold moments when college students would say, yeah, man, I just wish God would show up and do something, and then I would trust him. If I'm really bold and I know him well, I'd say, yeah, you're a liar. Because that's not true. <laughs> Especially if you are a believer in Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, what Jesus says is, I must go because it is to your advantage that the Holy Spirit would come. You're saying if Jesus showed up and said something to you right now, you would, you would believe and follow him? No, you're not. That's not true because you have the Holy Spirit within you and you're not doing it now. In this situation, like God even says to Israel, y'all are the ones who saw everything I did in Egypt. You saw us crossing the Red Sea. You've seen the miracles in the wilderness and yet you're not going to enter the promised land. He reminds them that they're the ones who don't get to see it. So like we need something more than that. We need the Holy Spirit residing within us, but we do have the benefit for us. We do have God's word revealed here. And whenever we want to pile on this experiential need to really convince us of God's activity, what God even says is like, no, you don't. Like, you've got this. This is what you need. That's my justice. That's my goodness. That's my word for you for all time right here. Yeah. Other observations or questions about numbers. Is numbers as lame as you thought? I'm telling you, I think Numbers is the one that, like, if you make it through Leviticus, a lot of folks on the yearly Bible reading plan, you get to Numbers, and you read chapter 1, you're like, okay, I'm done. Like, I, yeah, all these numbers from this tribe, and I don't even know who Issachar is and who Gad is, but there's, you know, 30,000 dudes. Like, what does it matter? Like, I, I'm not reading the rest of this book. And then literally, if you just stuck around for just a little bit more, you're going to see crazy things happen. I would argue that's generally how all of Scripture is. I don't know. Maybe there's some kind of truth there. I don't know. I'm not wise enough to see it, right? I promise you there is more in numbers than we generally think, and it is preserved for our benefit. God's Word is sufficient, and it is not exhaustive, but it's what we need, right? And I think even in these stories, there's plenty to be found there. All right, so next week, we are going to cover basically uh, Deuteronomy and Joshua getting to the uh, uh, leadership. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at them crossing over into the land. And they're going to fight at Jericho. Uh, and they're going to run through the rest of the book of Joshua. And we're going to see Joshua die. That's what we got next session. Yeah. If y'all got questions, after I get done praying, come up here, get some notes. I'll get you hooked up. Um, we can go from there. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the way in which you have so composed your word. 
God, I am thankful for countless nameless copyists and people who have translated for our benefit and how you have superintended that process. And we trust that you are good and uh, that you are gracious even with the way in which we have received your word bound in a thing in our lap in front of us. Um, God, I am thankful, more importantly, for what it tells us about our need for you and your covenantal faithfulness and how you make a way for us to be restored in relationship with you. And so, God, I pray that as we have looked at numbers tonight, that you will have been honored. And, uh, Father, that we will have been edified and that your Holy Spirit would work in us um, to make us realize the truths of what it is that we've read and heard tonight. We thank you, we love you, and we need you. Let me pray this in your son's name. Amen.